0: comment and share.
1: Hey, welcome, everyone. I uh, want to welcome everyone to another edition of the Matthew Erick Show, basically uh, where he breaks everything down geopolitically. Uh, you know, great commentary. Do us a favor, if you have not done so yet, jump over to Matthew's Substack, stack. Uh, subscribe there. Uh, lots of great articles, everything that he does with his work. Also visit the Rising Tide Foundation, which is the rising found t- uh, risingtidefoundation.net, as well as the canadianpatriot.org. Matthew, great day. How are you, sir? Hey, CJ. Very good. Thank you. Um, yeah, I figured today, uh, people who probably just saw that little screen share you did notice that on the Canadian Patriot website, uh, there's a few articles um, memorializing the life of JFK from a couple of different angles, one there by my wife uh, that was first published on the Saker in memory of JFK, the first US president to be declared a terrorist and threat to national security. Brilliant little article. I might be uh, dry- drawing from that in today's in today's remarks a little bit. Um, and also, there's another article on there um, by myself on JFK's vision for the future that should have been, and then something with Aleister Crowley and, and Aldous Huxley, which is we're not going to talk about that today, necessarily. But um, <clears throat> I wanted really just to, since it, we're one day past the anniversary of JFK's untimely death Um November 22nd, 1963. And I I mean, I shudder to think how many people, if you just walked out into an average street corner in a a busy city in in the United States or in Canada or in Europe, how many people would actually be aware of like what was the significance of the thing that happened on this day 58 years earlier? Um, Probably quite a few baby boomers might have an association in their minds. Um, Millennials. People born, especially after the year 2000, I, I really i am concerned how many, how few, maybe, maybe one in a hundred, I don't know, would actually know that this is the day that, that JFK was killed and how many of those would even be aware that there was a cover-up and it was uh, an inside job, much like 9-11. I don't know. I don't know. But today, I, I want to do a little bit of justice to his life and get people to recognize that um, there was and is something very special inside of the U.S. Constitution and the United, the United States experience as an experiment um, started really in full in 1776. But the, the fight to create this experiment goes back thousands of years, really. If you, if you go back to the writings of ancient Greece and Cicero in Rome, and you read the writings of a lot of these great thinkers like Plato in the Republic or Cicero's Commonwealth or St. Augustine's uh works especially on the city of god you start getting a sense that there's a continuity of ideas historically to fight for creating a system of laws a paradigm that would cherish the inalienable qualities of human beings made in the image of a living creator this is not mm. something that just bursted onto the scene by a bunch of people who didn't want to pay taxes you know in 13 colonies in 1776 just because you know they yep. didn't, that, that wasn't what would motivate you to like risk your life um, and and do this, so there's there's a higher continuous function of ideas that took concrete expression in this revolutionary way, and for the past 260 years, the the efforts on the part of the oligarchy, because there has also been a continuous function of an oligarchical system of hereditary elites wanting to keep people, the majority of families and people, in a slave class living in the shadows of Plato's cave. <laughs> Right, that the shadows on the cave wall, as Plato goes through in his allegory of the cave in in Book Seven of the Republic, they this this grouping, this f- faction of humanity, want, sees themselves as the shadow masters, and it's that their their right and duty even to cast those shadows, make the sounds that people. Who are dumbed down to believe in the, their, the, the senses that, that we're endowed with at birth is the only way we can form an idea of reality. That's not actually true. Human beings are made for more than that. Um, and when we're thinking in a healthy way, as Plato gets across, as does Cicero, as does Augustine, as does Benjamin Franklin, you start learning how to think with your mind's eye, right? You start building truthful discovery concepts that become the, 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 the foundation of how your mind penetrates and probes behind the surface of things into causality which can never be seen by the senses so this is something which when you read the writings of of great americans often those who tend to get shot at there's a sensitivity an awareness in abraham lincoln's uh, writings and speeches you get a strong sense of this platonic method of speaking beyond the surface of things looking at beyond the surface of things to their their essence so what JFK tapped into and represented as a, a part of this continuity is often completely overlooked. And even people who do tend to be aware of the conspiracy to kill him and, and you know, uh, cover that up for 50 plus years, they tend to get a little bit fet- fetishy about the whodunits. You know, you get a bit of a, a, a conspiracy fetish thing where people spend years of their life piecing together the, the um, mechanics of the three shooters and the role of Alan Ellis, and we're going to touch on some of that stuff, but the most important thing is what was was Kennedy actually doing? What was he a part of? How did he see himself in history? What allowed him to make the decisions that he made creatively to break the rules of the game on several occasions, which if he hadn't been killed and lived through two presidencies, followed by, you can imagine, his brother doing another two presidencies who was, you know, going to become the president in 1968, uh, what a different world this would be. And we need this now because, you know, we're we're at a point where the war drums are 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 hitting heavy. Um, We just got I mean, we could just see the Cold War, the Iron Curtains being set up all across Ukraine. Uh, You know, Belarus is being used. They're calling Belarus an authoritarian regime, not legitimate. Um, You know, uh, Estonia and Poland are all NATO basket cases being also used to provoke. Uh, a major conflict in Russia, Belarus, its allies with the, with China are all trying to build a future. They're trying to create a new type of economic security system based upon cooperation, win-win development. And they're just looking at this basket case collapsing beast on all sides of their perimeters, uh, doing all sorts of provocative maneuvers, really, really encircling them with, with military uh, offensive systems. Even the, the 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 head of or the U.S. Uh, State Department, a spokesperson, even said that we are willing to take our nuclear weapons in Germany and move them further east, probably to Poland or Lithuania or both, closer to Russia's border. So you got the the war drums are going. So we definitely need to be reminded of what is a more competent, sane uh, approach. And is it possible that this could even happen? from the united could the united states become sane is there anything is there are there any historical precedents and so again jfk got to really study how jfk was thinking strategically on a variety of levels and that's why i put together a little powerpoint which uh i'm just going to go through starting now i'm going to do a share screen um hello matthew hey it's v how you doing <laughs> hey what's
0: up buddy yeah right. back in sorry about the lateness folks um yeah, man. Good stuff today on the JFK stuff. Uh, I'm waiting for his brother to, uh, his son to reveal himself to us, JFK Jr. At any yes. moment, he's going to reveal himself to us. And uh, him and Trump are going to go on a, a reconciliation tour throughout the country. And, uh, and America's going to be great again, bro. That's it. Yeah. And the, and the crash helmets are going to make sure of it.
1: Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. That's, that's the, that's the thesis, right? That he actually guy, And and in fact, he's been behind the scenes organizing the good, the good white hats in the deep state for the past 25 years. Uh, which is how they, (laughs) they tried to explain away how somebody like a Trump could have even gotten power to begin with. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, but I mean, I guess this is, this goes to show the susceptibility of people to this is more indicative of the, the, the fear and desperation, you know, because when you're, when you're really afraid, the soul, the body hungers for food and water, you know, if you don't get those things, the body shrivels up, the soul hungers for hope. That's, that's what it it feeds off of. It needs that. That's it. The soul yearns for existence, right? Um, so when you're in a state of despair, depression, you're more inclined to just hold on to anything thrown at you. And there's a lot of decoys. There's a lot of decoy, uh, uh, life rafts that have been thrown out there made of paper, paper mache that people have been told to get on, get onto. Um, you'll be safe. Now there are actual life rafts. They are there, but that's why there's so many decoys that have also been thrown out. Like imagine people are like, you know, the Titanic is sinking. They're in the water. It's cold. They don't have that much longer to come up with a, a, a pathway out of it. There are some boats that are there, some life rafts floating around you could go to, but there's a bunch like, you know, it's the enemy has thrown a whole bunch of paper mache boats to convince people to put all of their eggs into, to, to, to put their energy into, which are destined to sink um, because they know if people, there's a lot of us, um, there's a lot of us who, who want to have a future. And if we were properly organized in our, in our minds and souls, we would be able to see through concrete solution pathways that could put out this fire and get onto that right lap, the, the correct life rafts. Um, and so that's where there's all this misinformation, these false macro narratives that have been scattered like a minefield right throughout the, uh, the zeitgeist to just deflect people. And and you know, but that's what I I'm, I'm trying to you know, and I think this is really really great that you guys have put together the platform you have with Rogue News, and there are people who are trying to give a concrete analysis that could help in- solidify people from all the walks of life to understand where are the goose eggs, where are the the fa- the fallacies, and then what is our proper history. So, this little PowerPoint I put together, uh, people can buy my books. The volume two is now out as of this week. Um, And they make great Christmas gifts, folks. That's true. Yes. They
0: make great Christmas gifts. I'm telling you, if you get it for yourself, get it for your family members, buy a couple of copies. That's what I usually do. When I like books, I buy multiple copies for myself, for family members, for
1: friends. Wake them up. This is how you do it. Go ahead, Maddie. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I I can get behind that. (laughs) And volume two, volume one is about 240 pages dealing from 1776 until about 1890. Volume two tackles 1890 to the present, even a little future. Um, and it's a 460-page behemoth. It's a much bigger book, um, but they can get that on the canadianpatriot.org site. The uh, image there of open versus closed systems collide with a juxtaposition of JFK, that beautiful painting, and new Brzezinski representing the two different opposing um, dynamics of the United States. Is uh, I think it, it tells the story well. Um, I'm going to be In the course of the book, it obviously treats um, McKinley's fight, um, Ulysses S. Grant, how McKinley was killed, the fight to spread the American system around the world, how that was subverted in Russia, in China, beyond with World War I. Uh, I go through extensively Franklin Roosevelt's fight. We go through the, the Cold War, how that was created what JFK did, what his brother did, and then we look at how the United States was recolonized, reconquered after Bobby Kennedy was, uh, was assassinated, and then what to do about it today. So how the, how the New Silk Road and the multipolar alliance led by Russia and China are reviving this historical tradition that once the United States led. So that's the, the final section of the book um, in, in, in whole, right? in a large uh, brushstroke. So the current presentation that I want to give um, is titled remember remembering JFK's vision for the future that should have been. I mentioned that uh, I was inspired very much to to compose this chapter. This is three chapters from my book that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, Cynthia Chung, my wife, uh, who wrote that wonderful article that's on the Canadian Patriot site, did a lot of work that really inspired me, as did Anton Shakin, who's also uh, publishing his own history book uh, very shortly, um, which I highly recommend people check out. So the, I gotta really just say thank you to these two individuals, especially there's been a lot of other sources I used obviously in my research. So let's go through a little bit of the future that should have been. Um, I wanna start with a, a short little uh, remark from JFK. One of the best speeches that I think embodies this best, this better tradition of the United States. Um, so I'll just play it. It's two minutes long.
2: What kind of a peace do
1: I mean? Can you hear that? Yes. Okay. And what kind of a peace do we seek?
2: Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace. The kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living. The kind that enables men and nations to grow and a hope and build a better life for their children not merely peace for americans but peace for all men and women not merely peace in our time but peace in all time i speak of peace therefore as the necessary rational end of rational man i realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures, and we are all mortal.
1: Yeah, so I found that that really just got across. Um, the spirit of JFK in terms of like what earned him the enemies that he had made in the course of his life. And people often try to find like, well, what's the reason that he got killed? You know, um, was it his, the, was it the mafia? His clashes with the mo- the mafia? Was it, was it, uh, you know, the steel barons? Was it this or that? And there's so many different um, theories floating around, you know, over like what he was doing. Um, his fight with the federal reserve. Was it, uh, you know, his, his, there there's no one thing. And I I think that that's always the most important thing to hold in mind is that JFK was operating on a multi-spectrum level there. It was, it was, he was thinking strategically as in a way that, that was more than the sum of parts of the different elements of geopolitics or economics or cultural policy. And the question is always, where does a guy like this come from? Did he just appear? A lot of people try to say that he was a cold warrior. Even a lot of people say he was an anti-communist, uh, Red baiter, you know, he only got in because of Papa Joe Kennedy, the fascist, uh, who worked with you know, uh, the Wall Street Baron, you know, the Wall Street bankers. And it's like, no, yes, his dad was uh, did a lot of terrible things, but luckily, the eugenicists are wrong. The sins of the father do not flow genetically through to the children. And JFK was, on the one hand, a veteran of World War II. He was a war hero. He nearly died a few times. His brother did die. His older brother, who was supposed to be the, the person who was going to carry on the family sort of uh, legacy as the president, he died. Joe Kennedy uh, Jr., I guess. Is, yeah, that was his name. So John was never really expected to be the, the you know, <laughs> the alpha. <laughs> I don't want to call it the alpha, but he wasn't supposed to become the president, but he really just took on a sense of identity. As he pointed out in the speech, we we're all aware of our mortality, we're all aware that we want a better life for our children. We're aware of the dangers of the world that could befall all of humanity um, if we act selfishly or foolishly. And, and so he's not an angel, right? There's there's People will often accuse those who celebrate a great person as a hero because they say, oh, you're, you're naively looking at the world from black and white and angels and demons. And it's like, no, these are human beings, but they're human beings who, who are willing to die for a cause and situated their lives in a higher understanding of, of a continuity of history and a higher moral purpose, which if you ignore that, you're really doing yourself and them a disservice and your own children because you're losing an ability to actually tap into something in yourself that they had figured out. So let's not do that. And so he didn't come from a vacuum. What was the process that he stepped onto on the stage of history? So to get the context, and I want to say a few things about the pre-presidential Kennedy as well you got to look at the dynamic of the world after World War II, or this is a picture from 1943 where you have Henry Wallace, the vice president under Franklin Roosevelt together. Um, 1943 was a a time of, of a lot of optimism for the, like the the nations, especially the poor nations of the world who had been colonized by European empires, Africa, South America, but especially Africa, Asia. Um, And there's a great hope for final independence. And, um, and the idea of people who were coming to the United States, like Kwame Nkrumah, many international leaders who had become leaders of the independence movements were all studying in the United States. They were studying how Roosevelt did the New Deal, how he built the Tennessee Valley Authority, the electrification project of the thirties. And they were all trying to figure out how do they adapt this to India, to Ghana, to South America. And many of them actually uh, did that with the help of allies of Franklin Roosevelt's vision. And, and FDR did envision a world of win-win cooperation based upon a China-US-Russia bedrock alliance. He even wanted to bring in Brazil too. Um, and Britain would be then dismantled as an empire and forced to behave for once like a real normal nation state within the, the rules of the game that these these nations would be setting forth. And it would all be premised around the international uh, export of the new deal. So things like the IMF, the world bank, the GATT system, the, the general agreement on tariffs and trade, these were all meant to be conduits for the emission of long-term credit for the development of large scale infrastructure so that nations could be given the means to feed themselves by building up industries in every country and standing on their own two feet, not just giving them money and, and keeping them poor the way that these, unfortunately after FDR died in 1945, these organizations that were put online from Bretton Woods were unfor- were taken over by the deep state that then utilized them as as tools to recolonize the countries that wanted independence economically so there a lot of them fought and succeeded in getting the political independence but when it came time for the more important economic independence to, to carry as means to carry out your political freedom they were in many cases uh, sabotaged by assassination coup and other. So anyway, these are the two um, Wallace put forth a speech in 1942 enunciating the four freedoms that the, the post-war world, once the Wall Street monster of fascism. And I say Wall Street because, you know, everyone should be aware at this point that Wall Street and the city of London funded fascism and eugenics, um, Nazism throughout the 30s and 40s. But when that was was going to be put down as a Frankenstein monster that it was. The idea was, well, the post-war world was going to be based upon the freedom, the four fundamental freedoms that every human being, regardless of your, your religion or ethnicity or whatever, all have access to based on what JFK tapped into. We all have fundamental needs, um, universal needs. Um, So let's just, I want to play a two minute blip from this incredible speech that Wallace had delivered to the American people, uh, situating this fight as part of a continuity of history again.
3: half-free. So in 1942, the world must make its decision for a complete victory one way or the other. Down the years, the people of the United States have moved steadily forward in the practice of democracy. When the freedom-loving people march, when the farmers have an opportunity to buy land at reasonable prices, and to sell the produce of their land to their own organization, when the workers have the opportunity to form unions, and bargain through them collectively. And when the children of all the peace opportunities are open to everyone, then the world moves straight ahead. But The march of freedom of the past 150 years has been a long drawn out people's revolution. This great revolution of the people, there were the American Revolution of 1775, the French Revolution of 1792, the Latin American Revolutions of the Bolivarian era, the German Revolution of 1848, the Russian Revolution of 1918, each spoke for the common man in terms of blood on the battlefield. Some went to excess. The significant thing is that the people broke their way to the light. The people are on the march toward even fuller freedom than the most fortunate peoples of the earth have hitherto enjoyed. The people in their millennial and revolutionary march toward manifesting here on earth the dignity that is in every human soul. hold as their credo, the four freedoms enunciated by President Roosevelt. We who live in the United States may think there is nothing very revolutionary about freedom of religion, freedom of expression, and freedom from the fear of secret police. But when we begin to think about the significance of freedom from want for the average man, then we know that the revolution of the past 150 years has not been completed, either here in the United States or in any other nation in the world. We know that this revolution cannot stop until freedom from want has been attained.
1: All right. So, just to get across, right? I was happy that he said some have gone to excess, but, you know, just to get it, like, there are some revolutions he enunciated in that list, which were not exactly great ideals to necessarily aspire to. But the point being is that they were the expression of humanity's desire for freedom and emancipation um, of the masses, um, which are all moving us in a teleological way towards that, that thing that Plato talks about when philosophers become Kings or Kings become philosophers um, or that Cicero enunciates in the Commonwealth or that Augustine talks about with the city of God, that there is natural law and God man's law will only not become self-destructive when it learns when we evolve ourselves and mature ourselves so that we learn how to craft our laws in accordance with god's law the city of god and the city of man have to be brought ever more increasingly into harmony without ever expecting to achieve an end point in that process because we can never will always be living in the material world with human constraints and human frailties that'll never be something we fully escape but the point is you need to have a cultural evolution which moves you always towards that self-perfectibility. Right. So that idea is very, very strong in FDR's mind. It's strong in Wallace's mind. It's very strong in JFK's mind. And so this is the, oops, screwed that up there. And I'll go to the next slide. Okay. So that's the the sort of environment that is being fought over in the end of World War II. And I mentioned FDR dies early. Stalin presumes and, and tells FDR's son that it was Churchill's people who had uh, poisoned his father. Um, But what we do know is immediately afterwards, the the deep state takes over. FDR has been already induced to um, remove Wallace in early 1945 as vice president and bring in a Wall Street um, ass licker named Harry Truman. And Wallace is is brought down to being like the, the commerce secretary but he's still in the cabinet. He's still a force and there's still FDR loyalists who are part of the cabinet of Truman, but they have a lot less power and the assholes have really taken over. So one of the key allies that is underrated that shapes in many ways, the Pan-African movement, uh, many processes during the post-war age and even the civil rights movement. This is the guy who (laughs) literally sparked the civil rights movement in the United States before Martin Luther King is the fellow there that Wallace is talking to. Uh, Paul Robeson, and Paul Robeson is, is famous as being an amazing man, an amazing man, Paul Robeson, totally,
0: and the right, and, and, and the conservatives in America have no idea who Robeson is, they just write him off as he's a, he's a communist,
1: oh yeah, that's the knee-jerk reaction, it's such a, this is probably one of the most powerful renaissance human beings of American history, yes, and, uh, as a Shakespearean actor, as a cultural ambassador and a fighter against fascism ab- abroad and, uh, pfft, racism at home, he was a fighter against imperialism. He had close friends with Kwame Nkrumah and he even created, he was, he worked with Albert Einstein on the American Anti-Lynching Committee. Albert Einstein was the co-chair of that with, alongside Robeson. Um, in 1944, he creates, um, the American Council on African Affairs. He's the founder of it, the president, and he authors the manifesto that calls for the, you know, 1944. How, how is the U.S. going to behave according to the former colony, colonies that will now be liberated of, of Britain and Belgium and France, especially in Africa? And he says to give concrete help to the struggle of the African masses, to disseminate accurate information concerning Africa and its people, in that to wake up Americans to what is happening in Africa, the one continent where undisguised colonial slavery is still practiced to influence the adoption of governmental policies designed to promote their advancement in freedom and preserve international peace, to smash the Iron Curtain of secrecy and double-talk surrounding the schemes for imperialist exploitation of Africa and its peoples, to prevent American loans and guns from being used to crush the freedom struggle of Africa and other subject peoples, to strengthen the alliance of progressive Americans, blacks and whites with peoples of Africa and other lands in the struggle for world peace and freedom. I think actually I could have been wrong about the date. This could have been 1947 or 48 when the Iron Curtain had fallen. Anyway, this just gets across again. And one of the members of this is Kwame Nkrumah, the founder of the Pan-African movement and first, you know, revolutionary president of Ghana, um, is a member and who is studying in America, like I said, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the dam building and, and working closely with Robeson and learning from Robeson as well. Uh, Wallace, he's ousted. And I'm going to tell you why he's ousted. Because in 1946, there's two quotes I have here, one from 44, one from 46. In 46, he basically uh, does the, uh, the unthinkable. And he says, we should have peace with Russia. <laughs> and he basically says, before the blood of our boys is scarcely dry in the field of battle, those enemies of peace try to lay the foundation for World War III. Bingo. These people must not succeed in their foul enterprise. We must offset their poison by following the policies of Roosevelt in cultivating the friendship of Russia in peace as in war. Before that, he even pointed out, while he was still vice president, he even pointed out that fascism in the post-war inevitably will push steadily for Anglo-Saxon imperialism and eventually for war with Russia. Already American fascists are taking, talking and writing about this conflict and using it as an excuse for their internal hatreds and intolerances towards certain races, creeds, and classes. So he's already foreseeing what would happen if FDR's vision is sabotaged, um, which is just amazingly prescient, especially considering what the world is going through today. So he's fired. Wallace is fired, and Robeson immediately takes the lead and become. I mean, this guy is a political activist of a very high regard, and ends up campaigning with uh, Wallace and a big network of FDR allies, including Harry Dexter White, the first founder and president of the of the IMF, who's an enemy of colonialism. People don't know that there was actually for a brief time the uh, uh, somebody who ran the IMF, Dexter White, um, who he was destroyed. I mean, he was in there for three years. He died while campaigning for Wallace in 48. But these guys basically rallied around Wallace as the last chance to revive FDR's dream. And Robeson said, we are shocked by the forced resignation of Wallace. We join with the overwhelming majority of Americans who want peace and democracy for this country and the world in fully supporting Wallace's criticism that is of American imperialism. We cannot avoid the painful conclusion that Truman's actions represents a complete capitulation to the reactionary minority in our country who seek world domination. So, Wallace is running for the presidency. From he, He's actually a candidate for the Progressive Party. And um, Robeson, sorry, I said Robeson. Wallace is, is the candidate. Robeson stopped singing for several months just to devote all of his time to campaigning for Wallace. He's even asked by Wallace to be his vice presidential running mate. But that he thinks that there's more good he could do internationally um, in his current position. But he does campaign for him extensively. And due to a lot of um intrigue, uh, that's sabotaged and Truman is brought in again.
0: You want to know something, man. It, it's it's mm-hmm. it's incredible the last quote you 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 know that Wallace spoke about in terms of you know when he stated that the blood hasn't even dried yet and the Mm -hmm. forces of war are already on the move to push us to a new uh, battlefield, right? It's amazing to me because it it, it recollected in my mind when I read Smedley Butler's book, Hmm. you know, War is a Racket, Mm -hmm. and uh, he talked about that right after, you know, World War II and the mobilizations and the Cold War and when the OSS was smashed and the CIA was created, how things kicked off with the Korean War. And then, right after the Korean War, before even the blood was dried, there, all the men, the material, the supplies, the ships, the logistics, and whatnot, were literally parked in various islands off the Pacific, ready to re-enter the thirty-eighth parallel at the right choosing of their at a time of their choosing, so to speak. It's amazing how these psychopaths think, man. They're so quick to get the war machine going.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and you're yeah. I think you were uh, referring to um um. Uh, Colonel Fletcher Prouty um, from the the CIA and Vietnam and the killing. Yeah, Prouty. What, what did I say? Yeah. Uh, Smedley Butler, who had the well, same story. Yeah, Proud, Right, 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 right. Sorry. <laughs> Patriotic military men. Yeah, Jeez. absolutely. I mean, no, you're right. Yeah, yep. Um, and and that's 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 right. So there there's definitely nefarious machinations that were already in place to prepare for the war in Vietnam and Korea um, immediately, and um, a lot of, I mean, essentially the French fascists. Uh, who were enemies of de Gaulle during World War II were brought back into power. They were encouraged to recolonize Vietnam, which they were done, which was done under American assistance under under the State Department of the U.S. and the newly formed CIA. Because at this time the OSS, which was still full of of FDR loyalists who understood the nature of the Wall Street London um, center of evil, they were flushed, labeled red commies, yeah. um, witch hunted, and only the worst of them were kept in there under the newly reformed um, CIA in 1947, which became sort of the the new clandestine secret police of the world that were working with the French fascists that were working with Pétain, the Nazi collaborators there in, in South, uh, Southwest Asia, uh, Southeast Asia. And uh, just to get across, you know, like a lot of people always think of Ho Chi Minh as being this big bad guy, right? This Fu Manchu type character. And, you know, even I had these, ignorant ideas after watching things you know like like Rambo 3 and stuff um or no no after Rambo no not Rambo 3 is in Afghanistan anyway <laughs> but yeah. you know you get the, these heroic ideas of Vietnam that were fed to us by propaganda machines Rambo what
0: to mean expendable
1: uh, yeah it means like you know when you are invited to a
0: party you don't show up and uh, nobody really cares <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was that super influential. Study, shaping yeah. how we think of Vietnam. That's actually yeah. But <laughs> so I, I got I got Ho Chi Minh here, and I got a little quote that looks like something people might recognize, which said, "All men are created equal. They are endowed how by their." Dare he this commie quote that? <laughs> you know, uh, they are endowed with their create by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This immortal statement was made in the Declaration of the United States of America in 1776. And this isn't just Ho Chi Minh saying that in 1945. This is actually embedded in the Constitution of Vietnam because Ho Chi Minh was still operating on a a recognition that FDR had promised and many other great Americans had promised him that they would help Vietnam and other colonies achieve real economic independence And they were so inspired by that, that they embedded the U.S. declaration into their constitution. Uh, What a mindfuck. And and who knew that they were going to be backstabbed the way that they were and had to fight not only the French fascists after having fought the Japanese in World War II and suffering immensely, but then also um, the United States as well. 1954, you got the Bandung Conference and 55, another one. Um, where you have the five principles of peaceful coexistence, which have become the bedrock of Chinese and uh Chinese foreign policy, which essentially recapitulates the best elements of the four freedoms of Roosevelt and that are enshrined also in the UN Charter. Um, despite the fact that it hasn't been followed, but the 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 Bandung Conference was organized by Shu and Zhou and Lai, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, you got up there Nasser, um, you've got uh, um uh, Sukarno of Indonesia, you got uh, Tito as well um, from Yugoslavia, who are there in that image. But there's many others, and the principle of is that foreign policy, international law, will be defined around mutual respect for each other's territorial integrity and sovereignty, mutual non-aggression, mutual non-interference in each other's internal affairs equality and mutual benefit and peaceful coexisting of nations, a harmony of in, of interests, right? People want to know where does the principle of win-win cooperation come as opposed to the rules-based international order. It's inspiration is ironically, it's, it's the Bandung conference, but it's also ironically embedded in the Westphalian system of the West that gave rise to the principle of sovereign nation states that we've already talked about many times. This is the basis of the American re- revolution in the U S constitution so, and a U.S. foreign policy under John Quincy Adams, under McKinley, under FDR, under JFK. It's, it's, it's all part of the same process expressing itself according to different cultures. So, within that context, I'm going to go on a little bit longer. I, I guess there's no there's no cutoff time, right? Yeah, we don't ahead, care. Man. Yeah, we don't care. Okay, good. Um, so, within that context, who is JFK, right? He becomes president in 1961, but in 1951, he's an early a, a junior congressman. What is he doing as a congressman? Is he just like, you know doing a Hunter Biden, you know, try to just like have fun and, and, uh, and go to orgies around the world. You know, he's often treated like a party boy. Hell no. Him and his brother, uh, Robert are touring the world. They're going to Africa. They're going to the middle East. And, and in one speech, um, he, he's, he's already visited, um, as again, congressman, all of these Arab countries that are boiling over with independence movements. Um, and he says, uh, the post-war colonial world is an area in which poverty and sickness and disease are rampant injustice and inequality are old and ingrained the fires of nationalism now are now ablaze for 100 years and more it has been the source of empire for western europe for england england and france and holland a middle east command operating without the cooperation and support of the middle east countries would intensify every anti-Western force now active in the area and from a military standpoint would be doomed to failure. The very sands of the desert would rise to oppose the imposition of the outside control on the destinies of these proud peoples. The true enemy of the Arab world is poverty and want. Obviously speaking to those in the U.S. State Department and CIA who are pushing for greater imperial controls of the Middle East. And he's saying, no, you can't do that. It's poverty and want that are the enemies here. Um, Our intervention on behalf of England's oil investments in Iran directed more at the preservation of interests outside of Iran than at Iran's own development. Our failure to deal effectively after three years with the terrible human tragedy of more than 700,000 Arab refugees, Palestinians. These are the things that that have failed to sit well with the Arab desires and make empty the promises of the voice of America. This is JFK, 1951. right? Much much more profound of a thinker than people realize, and you know, Iran had not yet been overthrown. Mossadegh was still fighting against the uh, British petroleum and their uh, American assets, who were who were working to uh, you know to stop the nationalization from happening. And JFK was saying, no, it's their right to nationalize these things. We have to let you know <laughs> stop the Anglo-American relationship. A little bit later. Um, He's been elected, I think, at this point, and he's now just waiting to be inducted as the president. But he says, behind the fact of Castro coming to this hotel, now this is in New York, this is the Shelburne Hotel, where Castro was had come and gave a speech at the at a UN General Assembly. Um, and you think, okay, well, Kennedy is supposed to be this, this big anti-communist. That's how he's always sold. Uh, but he actually goes to the same hotel a few weeks later, and he gives a speech, and he says... Oh, no, this is during the uh, the elections. This is the, the elections haven't happened yet. Um, and he says, behind the fact of Castro coming to this hotel and Khrushchev, there is another great traveler in the, in the world. And that is the travel of a world revolution, a world in turmoil. We should be glad that Castro and Khrushchev came to the United States. We should not fear the 20th century right. for the worldwide revolution. We uh, which we see all around us is part of the original American revolution. Amazing, and they spun all of that is a bu- dude. Yeah. That
0: was a tactical nuke fired from a satellite from space. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> and you know what was happening during that time? The entire bought and paid for Western establishment, fascist media, military, uh, in a complex wrote off all of these revolutions, these populist uprisings as a communist revolution mobilizing Americans to fight against it. Holy cow.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we're supposed to believe, like, the, the cover story that was first put out there, the Russiagate story around JFK's killer uh, who was, you know, set up was supposed to be that Castro uh, kill him because Castro hated uh, JFK, apparently, who – and or the Russians. That's why they, they set up, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald for a few months in Russia – because they were trying to say, oh, look, the Russians obviously deployed him. That's why there was this red herring that was set up there. But it's like, no, he actually worked really, really hard to uh, in opposition to the Warhawks to recognize that the fight of the, the the Soviet and communist parts of the world were in harmony with the, Amer- the spirit of the American Revolution. Um, he actually was was completely doing an intellectual flank. Um, despite the fact that one could have legitimate complaints for all of these places, right? Just like Wallace recognized there were failures with the Bolshevik revolution and the German revolution. But the point is he recognized there was this higher function going on and was able to completely, like you said, blow the ship out of the water from space of all of these war hawks who were just saying the only solution is war and confrontation with Russia and with Cuba. And there were, there was no shortage of these guys. And in Stanford in 1960, again, Uh, Now he's about to be inducted as president, but he's not president yet. He says, call it nationalism, call it anti-colonialism. Africa is going through a revolution. Africans want a higher standard of living. 75% of the population now lives by subsistence agriculture. They want an opportunity to manage and benefit directly from the resources in, on, or under their land. The wow. African people believe that science, technology, and education available in the modern world can overcome their struggle for existence, that their poverty, squalor, ignorance, and disease can be conquered. The balance of power is shifting into the hands of two-thirds of the world's people who want to share what the one-third has already taken for granted.
0: Boom! Oh, my God. That was a thermonuclear device going off right there, man. Holy crap! <laughs> no, no yeah. this is why they killed him. Yeah. This yeah. is why they killed him. He understood the open American system. He understood it.
1: Yeah, and he was making it happen. He had he had negotiations going with with Patrice Lumumba, who was a follower of Kwame Nkrumah. He had he had a friendship going. Kwame Nkrumah was the first head of state to be invited to the United States once he was made president. It wasn't Britain, it wasn't Canada, it wasn't some other like first world country. He brought in Kwame Nkrumah for a red carpet treatment in the in Washington as his first guest of honor. Um, So he was very aware that at this point, you know, you just had Kwame had just brushed like led a revolution against the British in 1957, first country to really fundamentally break free and declare independence. Followed by Toure from France in 58, and then you have 13 countries by 19. By the time he's saying, this, 13 countries have just in a in a tight period declared independence, and they they want. Development. They want help. They want to end hunger. And JFK is organizing to provide long-term loans, credit, development aid, industrial aid, scientific aid from the United States to help these countries stand wow. on their own two feet.
0: Can you imagine uh, if he would have done that? Imagine he was never killed. America would have been a would have continued to be an industrial powerhouse. We would have made peace accords and ties and trade deals with the Soviet Union, with China. We'd have a thousand years of peace in this world. Yeah. Oh, my God.
1: And, you know, the thing that he was also being warned about, like Eisenhower, you know, you complain about Eisenhower and he was was definitely much weaker than FDR or JFK. But he wasn't evil and he did give at least a useful warning towards the end, you know, a few days before JFK enters saying, like, look, the military industrial complex is uh, a very dangerous beast that everyone has to be diligent of. Um, he did try to push back against it, but he was much more politically naive as well and had people like John Foster Dulles whispering in his ear left and right. But, you know, Eisenhower was offering JFK sage advice, as was um, people like Eleanor Roosevelt, who was JFK's primary sponsor, um, who was trying to you know keep her former husband or hus- her husband's uh, vision alive in some way. Um, that was what gave him, in many ways, the type of political support needed to beat out Nixon, who was a lackey of of uh, Averell Harriman and, and the FBI in 1960. Um, but you have their Doug- General Douglas-, Douglas MacArthur as well, who very much understood the nature of the Anglo-American establishment, um, who did give his support as well to Kennedy and gave him a lot of advice, as did Charles de Gaulle. So you had the old guard. Um, who had fought and put down the fascist machine who had rallied around JFK recognizing his potential and gave him the intellectual fortitude needed to, to do battle because when you know when Eisenhower had tried to do his crusade for peace, you know he he did do good things like he did push back against the ouster, you know there's a lot of pressure to get the. US to support the killing of Nasser um, and, and stand in alliance with Israel and, and Britain over the, the Suez Canal, and, and Eisenhower said no to that, fought to even support uh, Middle Eastern countries, especially Iran, to have access to atomic power. That was what the Adams <clears throat> for Peace was about. He tried to meet with Khrushchev, he tried to meet with Stalin, uh, that's Eisenhower. Um, unfortunately, the meeting with, with Stalin didn't work because Stalin died a few days before he could actually meet with Eisenhower that was supposed to put out the, the fires of the Cold War in 54. And with Khrushchev, there was a, a CIA, basically a sabotage. Uh, my wife writes about it in, in her paper. Um, she did a trilogy on this. Um, but there was basically um, a CIA p- a, a pilot <laughs> who was told to go fly over the Soviet Union. He was given half a tank of, uh, of gasoline in his plane that was obviously going to cause him to crash on Soviet territory. Um, and all of his, his CIA classified papers were all put on the plane So that right before the meeting between Eisenhower and uh, Khrushchev, this thing would cause obviously such a crazy scandal and it destroyed the meeting. It destroyed the potential, the potential for Entente. Um, So JFK was like entering into a very messy environment, right? Um, But as, as I mentioned, so he, he unveiled the program called the new frontiers. It had several aspects. I I put out here, the, the primary, aspects of it or, or dimensions of it, which is his battle to continue the International New Deal to revive that program. And what did he do? He had, uh, he worked with uh, Kaiser Steel of California, uh, who was part of the old school real American industrial sort of enterprises to that was in opposition to the JP Morgan steel enterprises, uh, who wanted really to revive real development and progress. And Kaiser Steel had a deal set up with JFK's help with Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana to build the biggest dam, <clears throat> hydroelectric dam, called the Akosombo Dam, on the uh, uh, the Volta River, uh, which was finally completed in '66. And this was going to be an industrial driver, kind of like the Ethiopian Dam today of uh, the Grand Renaissance Dam is, is hopefully going to be a driver of industrial progress for Africa. Unfortunately, and even today, it has a little plaque saying uh, dedicated to the martyred President Kennedy. Today, that's where that plaque is still there on that dam. Um, He had programs to help uh, Jawaharlal Nehru with uh, building new uh, steel complexes to really develop for themselves. He had work with um, Nasser to develop nuclear power with Lumumba, who unfortunately was killed three days before JFK was inaugurated under the orders of Alan Dulles, who was running the CIA. So they actually called for the assassination of Lumumba and they knew that they had that small little window of, 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 of time to act freely before JFK really got a hold of, you know, the, the Oval Office where you could sort of get away with doing anything during that, that time between presidents um, who was trying to really break the Congo free of, of its Belgium uh, manipulations um Sukarno of Indonesia he had worked with uh, Jomo Kenyatta to help them industrialize. So he had a, he had a multi multi-levelled industrial new deal, international new deal program. I didn't even mention South America but that was there too. Um he had worked with um Charles de Gaulle very closely um to create a US French and also de Gaulle was working to fight his own deep state. Uh, he had already avoided several assassination attempts by 1962. Um, run by the French secret uh, army that was uh, run by this guy, Charles uh, uh, General Schall. And uh, this this comes into the JFK assassination too later. Um, but Charles de Gaulle is working to free and give independence to Algeria, stop the the colonialism, the French colonialism in, in Indochina. Um, so de Gaulle is working as well with Adenhauer, the, the new chancellor of Germany, to create a new type of dynamic for Europe. Based upon cooperation with China. He's the first country to recognize mainland China in 1965. Um, he tries to create a, an idea of Europe with an entente with Russia from the Urals to the, Atlant- uh, from the, yeah, the Atlantic, from the Urals to the Atlantic. That's the, his idea of, of a strategic uh, European uh, security architecture. So de Gaulle is, is among this whole network of humanists. Um, Enrico Mattei, who's an an Italian leader, an Italian industrialist, um, is also working to help African development and working closely with these circles too, who's unfortunately assassinated, um, around the time of Patrice Lumumba when his plane is sabotaged. Um, this seems to be the same sort of operation that was run to kill also Dag Hammarskjöld, the the UN secretary general who was, who was part of also this pro-independence process. Uh, so JFK is, is doing several things. He's, he's also breaking the, the five eyes CIA and FBI. He's like fighting against the FBI dictatorship that had run the, 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 the red scare. And how does he do this? He does it by, um, (laughs) he basically gives his support to Spartacus the movie, right? Which is already a very powerful political commentary, um, written by Dalton Trumbo, who is one of the, 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 the the ten uh, Hollywood scriptwriters who were blacklisted, um, and he basically says this is an amazing movie, very important, and and him giving his support ends the the blacklist, and um, and he goes on a on a major warpath against Hoover in a variety of ways. Now Hoover is very difficult to to nail down. He's he's a man of the shadows, uh, which is where you want to be if you're a, a, a flamboyant crossdresser who's you know living <laughs> under your mother's shadow <laughs> way after she's dead um but he's a real psychopathic dictator and uh and so JFK is doing this he's firing Alan Dulles when when he finds and he does a whole survey uh, of the Bay of Pigs what how did the CIA go renegade and initiate the Bay of Pigs with the State Department and he does a survey because this is be, people blame him for this the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba that failed and it's like no this was already put into motion before he was inducted as, as president, uh, by Ellen and John Foster Dulles. And so he does, um, a report, he, he commissions a report that puts all that finds out exactly that, um, that, uh, Charles Cabell, Richard Bissell, who are vice directors of the CIA and Ellen Dulles were complicit for running this thing. And he uses that to fire them first and only time that a CIA director has been fired by a president, um, he ends the and and he also passes a uh, a piece of legislation to uh, it's called um, NSAM uh, 55 national security act memorandum 55 to uh, dismantle the CIA effectively and to scatter it into the winds as he himself was recorded as saying and give its its uh, its operations over to the state department Instead of it, and and basically forcing the CIA to become what it should have been, which is just an intelligence gathering operation, not clandestine warfare. That was what that that bill was. Um, he additionally fought to end. Oh yeah, also on the test ban treaty. He so he fought to end the 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 Cold War by doing several things, calling for win win cooperation with Russia, and. Doing this in a way that involves having Russia and the U.S. together jointly do the space program, not just having the U.S. do a space program solo, but together not have to replicate uh, expensive research and other things together as a way to find an, a higher harmony of interests above yeah. the Cold War logic of Manichaean dualisms. Um, this also accompanied the Test Ban Treaty, which was signed by Russia, the U.S., and 100 countries as well. So this is a short one and a half minute uh, excerpt from his speech at the United Nations a month before he was killed, calling for this US-Russia alliance, which is a very important way to think to get out of, you gotta break the rules of the game. There's nothing within the current games rule system that will allow you to survive either then or today. You gotta introduce creative change. So here, let's listen to JFK.
4: General assembly, which opened in an unusually hopeful proposal finally in a field where the united states and the soviet union have a special capacity in the field of space there is room for new cooperation for further joint efforts in the regulation and exploration of space i include among these possibilities a joint expedition to the moon Space offers no problems of sovereignty, by resolution of this assembly, the members of the United Nations have forsworn any claim to territorial rights in outer space or on celestial bodies, and declared that an international law, and the United Nations Charter will apply. Why, therefore, should man's first flight to the moon be a matter of national competition? Why should the United States and the Soviet Union, in preparing for such expeditions, become involved in immense duplications of research, construction, and expenditure?
0: Powerful. Matt, Matt, Matt. Man. <laughs> I mean, Matt, you're just dropping bombs on us today, man. Bombs.
1: It's all Kennedy. It's all Kennedy.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's all Kennedy. Let's all remember that. I mean, this is the reason why he was killed. And, yeah. you know, the Federal Reserve and, and the CIA to a thousand pieces, all these other things, those were just ancillary. Because the Federal Reserve, the intelligence services, these were just apparatchiks of the globalists. You know, but the, at the crux of it is destroying this globalist ideology of us versus them.
1: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. And, and so... There's this higher under, cause it's, it's more important how you're thinking than what you're thinking about anything, right? So the, how you're thinking is sort of the, the macro operating system that shapes everything else. And JFK had that understanding that it was the, the cold war was driving people insane, right? There was a constant fear of mass nuclear Armageddon every day, especially for young people going through this trauma as a young person, you don't know what the hell is governing your world. You're just being told you could die any minute. Think about the kids being, uh, you know, suffering this new form of treatment under global warming hysteria today, and shock therapy that they're being given in their schools and elementary. Or COVID nineteen is the new black plague that can kill your family and your grandpa and your grandma if you're like, you know, <laughs> in her midst, even if you don't have any any symptoms. And these kids are being uh, traumatized psychologically, which could, if if this is not treated, and you don't give somebody a sense of a higher optimism, a higher purpose to life. This will result in very sick adults who will appear to be adults, but will have deep psychological subconscious issues that make them very malleable to fascists who want to control them. So JFK was was creating things like um, the, the New Frontiers, right? The the Peace Corps, giving young people a chance to see the world and, and not really do that by becoming a member of the military, which is the way young people in high school are being sort of given a chance to see Afghanistan nowadays or, you know, wherever, uh, but rather really build infrastructure and help build schools in India and other countries. And that was a very different idea. Um, there was an idea of the space program and going beyond the frontiers of knowledge and pressing onto the unknown so that you could encourage creativity that would then help organize the best of your talents and give a right uh, place to your values in society and organize the whole economy around the idea of doing things, uh, both in, as far as the Apollo projects were concerned, but then he also had a view far beyond the moon towards, and he talks about it, developing nuclear rockets, fusion rockets that he funded, um, to take us to the fo- the outer reaches of the solar system, to have a, a, a colony on uh, Mars by something like ni- eight, 1984 was sort of the objective at that time. So we were on a very different trajectory for what the future should be. Um, and it was all based on an idea of cooperation, not doing this to, uh, you know, build, see who can have more bombs, us or the Soviets or the Chinese, you know, it was an idea of finding a higher harmony of interests. Um, so back to our, oops, back to this. Ending the the war in Vietnam, you know, I I mentioned he had advice from De Gaulle and Eisenhower, especially, who gave him great advice on how to get the hell out of Vietnam. Colonel Fletcher Prouty, who uh, wrote the book you cited, uh, talked about this this at length. His NSAM 263 memorandum called for the extraction of U.S. advisors who were quickly becoming covert mercenaries in Vietnam, which was going to become um, what we know of it as a bloodbath. Um, he called for the extraction of u s. troops with a, an intention to have a full, full extraction within the year. Um, you had also, as I said, a push for um, a, a, a classical educational experience in schools that would really be focused on giving kids um, real education, a real knowledge of sciences, the idea of having the space program reshape the entire education program. Because everything would be changing. When you give people a mission to do the impossible, it forces all of the theories that you have been taking for granted to be pressed up against reality and tested. You can't just have ivory model theories about the atom or about uh, space-time that are not useful if you're doing something. These types of useless theories, like the ones we've got in standard model cosmology and atomic physics today that don't bear any reality or 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 darwinian evolution that don't bear any reality to to the universe as we can experimentally find it the reason why they can build up like a cancer is because we're not doing shit you know we're just sitting here in a consumer society uh you know getting fed a bunch of crap from you know poor countries and we're not we have no purpose we have no missions anymore since especially JFK's brother was killed so that idea of having your education system defined by the new discoveries building new textbooks on a frequent basis because as you're going into the unknown making discoveries trying to accomplish the mission of you know putting a human being on on uh, the moon you're making breakthroughs in mris in i mean the internet came out of this uh, the so many things minerals the idea of elements everything is changing very quickly and that's a good thing empires don't like that because they want to monopolize existing knowledge and control it Uh, to control the rules of the game. So they don't like these sorts of things. This is kind of like what Russia and China are doing today with their space program and Belt and Road Initiative and high-speed rail. They're putting their minds to a place that are going to constantly uh, transform the rules of the the rigged game, which is why they're targeted for destruction, um, as JFK was. So I won't go through the details. I mean, you know, people should watch, I I think for starters, if they haven't, Oliver Stone's movie, uh, JFK from 1992. I think that that's, that's a must watch. It was a very well done movie, um, with Kevin Costner and a lot of stars who participated in that based on the research of Colonel Fletcher Prouty, um, as well as, uh, Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison is the district attorney from New Orleans who ran, ran the only real jury case on the conspiracy to kill Kennedy um, in 1960, I think it was 66, 67 or 67, 68, he did this uh, this jury case, and it was zeroing in on the actual assassination bureau that was tied to the CIA yep. and an organization called Permindex, um, the Permanent Industrial Exposition, which was a branch of the, uh, the Centro Comercio Mondiale, or otherwise known as the World Trade Center, with a, a base of operations in Montreal. And in this book, which is again a very good book, you can get it online for like for free, I think, but you could buy the hard copy for like five bucks. Um, my wife Cynthia used this extensively in her trilogy on, on JFK versus Dulles. Um, but he writes, G- Jim Garrison writes, the CIA, which apparently had been conducting its own foreign policy for some time, had begun a project in Italy as far back as the early 1950s. The organization named the Sandro Com- Mondiale Commerciale had initially been formed in Montreal and then moved to Rome in 1961. Among the members of its uh, directors we learned was one Clay Shaw from New Orleans. Yeah. As for permindex and Clay Shaw is, is the guy that uh uh Tom oh, what's his name? Uh uh the actor um in JFK um Tom forget it doesn't matter. So Clay Shaw is one of the key figures who's a point man in New Orleans uh that Jim Garrison finds is behind the operation that kills Kennedy as for permindex it had among Tommy Lee Jones, that's him Tommy Lee Jones as for permindex it had among other things secretly financed the opposition to the French uh, French secret army organization. Oh, sorry. It had secretly financed the opposition of the French secret army organization to president de Gaulle's support for independence for Algeria, including its reputed assassination attempts on de Gaulle. Now, just quickly there, de Gaulle was able, he organized, after surviving several assassination attempts um, run by the OAS and the CIA, he uh, conducted a, his own French intelligence study that found Permindex's uh, bank accounts to be directly tied to several of the assassination uh, offices that were tied to the, C- the OAS. And using this this proof was able to get France and then also Switzerland to kick Permindex's offices forever out of their countries. So they were no longer allowed to operate, and they moved their headquarters to South Africa at that time, um, whose president had already recently been assassinated, who is a friend of Dag Hammarskjöld, which is a whole other story. Um, So the the key thing here, though, um, for our story, for um, JFK's murder, is what he says in the last little section here. He says, one of the major stockholders of the Santro was a major Louis Mortimer Bloomfield, a Montreal resident and former agent with the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, out of which the United States had formed the CIA. Now, Mortimer Bloomfield is the key point man who came out of the Ellen Dulles Network Um, based in the United, uh, based in Canada, like I said, like he says in Montreal, very much tied to the Bronfman's and these other, these other groups, um, he runs, so this thing basically served during world war II as an assassination outfit that was useful in the course of world war II, but it didn't stop doing its work when the war ended. It basically just put on a veneer of of a shell company and continued to carry out um, clandestine assassinations, um, throughout the cold war. So major Louis Mortimer Bloomfield is a major figure in this process. And, um, Clay Shaw is a part of this group called trademark as well, which I mean is documented thoroughly in this, which is tied to David Ferry. That is Oswald's handler, um, who was very close to Clay Shaw and was a part of these different orgies that they were, that Clay Shaw was hosting at his, uh, mansion frequently, um, they were very much tied to um, Sir William Stevenson, the the head of British foreign uh, secret operations, uh, Churchill's intrepid, and uh, many many others. The the guy who creates uh, uh, James Bond, uh, what's his name, Ian Fleming, he's also a part of this thing. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, reality is stranger than fiction sometimes. But so Garrison actually manages to pull some amazing evidence together. He gets the the Zapruder film to become declassified. I mean, it, it was formerly under private possession somehow Yeah, in the owner of, I, I guess it's Time, Time, um, Time Life Magazine headquarters or was it Fortune headquarters? But some major media mogul had ownership of the Zapruder film, which I think now everybody knows of, but he basically, it was made classified. So nobody got to see this thing for five years until 1967 when he finally got his hands on it and discovered that just by looking at the film, um, it's very evident that JFK is getting shot from the front, and his head is going back. Very, very clear that there's many, many bullets. That's where they get the, the magic bullet, um, you know, terminology. That that like shot through several locations at different triangulations, like a magic bullet. <laughs> you have to be like a real quantum physicist to come up with a, a rational or logical conclusion of how that could be that could happen. But in well, reality, that's, the, that's
0: where that's where you're kind of missed the point here. The magic bullet theory is true. In fact. That magic bullet is flying around till this very day. It has not ceased flying. Mm. Every weekend
1: it kills multiple people in Chicago. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I forgot about that. So, okay, there's that There's that aspect to it. <laughs> well, this magic bullet did a lot of damage back then. <laughs> um, and, and he was the first person to really put the light onto that during the course of this jury trial. And uh, he unfortunately just didn't have enough to fully and maybe part, part of the problem why he couldn't successfully get – Clay Shaw convicted is he couldn't prove that Clay Shaw knew David Ferry, who also died before he could testify. Um, As I said, this is Oswald's handler. Um, But almost every person who was a witness, uh, there was over 70 witnesses who saw the shooters on the grassy knoll who were being called in to testify, who were just ignored by the the Warren Commission, which was run by Alan Dulles, the guy that JFK had fired from the CIA, became the guy who runs the, the Warren Commission five days after JFK is killed to cover up the real causes of the murder. So all of these witnesses who were ignored by the Warren commission were all being called into testifying one after the other, they would all show up suicided. Um, so he didn't have a lot of people at a certain point who he could actually use as evidence. That was a part of the unfortunate thing. And, and to this very day, Jim Garrison is labeled as a, a bit of a kooky tyrant who tried to, you know, um, uh, uh, besmirch the reputation of, of the Honorable Clay Shaw. To this day, there's there's networks of people who are paid operatives to write books about this. But that, that's a picture of Clay Shaw there uh, holding the Warren Commission report looking creepy. That's uh, Mortimer Bloomfield, whose uh, archival, all of his papers were supposed to be declassified in 2004 after 25 or 30 years at the National Archives of Canada. Um, for whatever reason, the law was not maintained and they're still classified. Nobody can look at them. Uh, that's a picture of the World Trade Center Permandex uh, meeting from 60, 1958 or 59. And just to wrap this all together, so what was the one of the biggest uh, transgressions of JFK? Well, it was this evoking a sense that human beings are not animals, that we can transcend the limits to growth, and that we are natural when we're being creative, our te- technology that we advance. And the new scientific discoveries we, we make are not outside of nature. There's no war of nature versus human development, as is currently the foundation of the, the brainwashing that we've been subjected to for decades now, which is like every time human beings build a dam or we build infrastructure to make life better for ourselves or our kids, we hurt nature more. We cause CO2, which causes the destruction of, of the, the, the climate. Um, that's bullshit. None of that is based on science. Human JFK understood that the human mind and what it does is a part of nature. And it's natural that we green deserts. It's natural that we transcend those limits so that we can always have more people at a higher standard of living. As long as we're always moral enough to make discoveries, inspire young people to want to make discoveries, to be the best that they can be, and then translate those into new technologies that that we share for everyone rich and poor like to end poverty that's real win-win cooperation it's not being an angel it's just rational higher self-interest based on a love like our, our self-interest is to love ourselves love nature love human beings and love God the the creator of all of that that's already there in the book of Matthew in uh, in the Bible it's it's it was a, a fact of life understood right and to do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. That's a a part of natural law. You don't do that. Like these guys would never be the, they call, they talk about depopulation, the people like, you know, Bloomberg and and I'll say something about that, or any of these founders of the modern uh, ecology movements, they talk about overpopulation, depopulation, but they're never the ones to want to take the bullet themselves and actually like walk the walk there. It's always for the, the, the darker skinned or poor people of the world to, to be the, uh, (laughs) the depopulated ones. Yeah. So they were not willing to basically live the, the Confucian edict of do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. Or the, Well, here's the a
0: perfect analogy, Matt. I mean, yeah. this morning we found out that Nancy Pelosi bought a 11,000-square-foot mansion no. for $25 million on the beach in Florida.
1: <laughs> so afraid of global warming, eh?
0: So afraid. They're all terrified of global warming. They're all buying beachfront property. They're terrified.
1: Oh, uh, what what – how silly of them, how, how silly of them that they're doing that. And what, what a waste. They're, they're spending all this money and it's going to be underwater, according to their own statements, in just a few years. Oh, is it possible that they don't actually believe the garbage that they're saying that they want us to believe? Maybe. Huh? Um, so what is Bloomfield doing and what is... What are these guys doing? Well, if you look at what JFK is up against, he's calling for the new frontiers. He's calling for breaking limits to growth. And at the same time, in 1961, you have the creation of the World Wildlife Fund for Nature, founded by Julian Huxley, the the president of the world eugenics or the British Eugenics Society, and Prince Bernhard, who had just founded the the Bilderberger Group in 1954. While Bandung was happening, he was creating the, the Bilderberger Group to get rid of, to crush national sovereignty and to create world government and Prince Philip. These three guys set up the World Wildlife Fund for Nature as a funding mechanism to get cash for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which Julian Huxley had set up in 1947 as the world's first conservation movement organization. It needed more money. So they do this in 1960, 61. they set this thing up. In 1947, Julian Huxley, after having just created UNESCO, He then writes an essay where he describes the importance of eugenics as the governing master science of the New World Order, which he says that where he describes the lowest strata are reproducing relatively too fast. Therefore, they must not have too easy access to relief or hospital treatment, lest the removal of the last check on natural selection should make it too easy for children to be produced or to survive. Long unemployment should be a ground for sterilization. This is, this is the guy who created the United Nations Education, Science, and Cultural Organization, created, was the founding father of the, the modern environmental movement. He was the head eugenicist of his day, worked closely with his brother, Aldous. They were not enemies. So, they worked together. So
0: loving. So loving.
1: So, so loving guy. While, while you have FDR and Wallace and Robeson actually talking about ending world hunger, these guys are saying no, you can't do that because that would make us too overpopulated. We have to encourage hunger because that's a part of the natural selection checks that nature gave us to keep the unemployed and the unfit from multiplying. Um, so then, what is—is is it that these guys really just love nature and—and and that's different from their eugenics views, and that's why? Uh, no, not at all. If you look at what—what what else are they doing? What is Prince Bernhard and Prince Philip doing? They're sponsoring. The Club of Rome, that's the upper left-hand side there with Sir Alexander King, who is the head of the OECD, who, who creates the Club of Rome in 1968 um, to promote a new science, to, uh, to justify neo-Malthusianism as a new religion of the elite and something that everyone would have to bow down to. To get more money for these, these operations, Prince Bernhard also goes and creates the 1001 Trust, and this is 1,001 people who are all expected to chip in $10,000 to create a fund of capital that becomes the basis of a lot of clandestine operations. Um, and on the founding board of the 1,001 trust, which includes a lot of upper level oligarchs, a lot of uh, old uh, you know, bloodline uh, royals of Europe and even Morocco and, and others, um, you have people like Louis Mortimer Bloomfield who's on there. You have uh, Maury Strong, who's a founding member, um, Conrad Black, uh, who's a member who's a media mogul. You have Peter Monk, who's the guy there on the bottom left hand side who runs Barrett Gold, one of the biggest gold uh, and mining outfits that's been col- yep. like neocolonial policy of Africa. you know like all of these guys, a lot of them are are oil magnates. they're into mining they, they're into destroying nature, but they all seem to really love nature so much that they want to fund the World Wildlife Fund so much. Again, They don't care about nature they care about recolonizing and keeping slaves um and this is the limits to growth study that was uh produced by the club of rome in 1972 to try to scientifically justify this new type of policy that emerged uh which kissinger brought into operational effect with Zbigniew brzezinski under the trilateral commission of the 70s uh to encourage depopulation of, of poor countries instead of infrastructure and science which had formerly been the norm of u.s foreign policy and that's basically an image of the the arithmetic growth of population and the um or sorry the the geometric growth of population of Malthus from the 1799 period um and the how food will always grow at a slower rate causing a, a crisis which has to always be managed by a master elite of of you know uh scientists to manage the population growth that was maltus's claim it was disproven Um, throughout the 19th century by by American primarily uh, creativity and love of invention and enterprise and freedom that proved that you could always have more people um, as long as you're applying new discoveries. That's the the contingency of the whole thing. And on the right-hand side there is the limits to growth, more advanced mathematical computer models that basically repackaged Malthus using more variables of pollution and concluded the same thing that There's no way to overcome overpopulation. We have to impose world regulations on on how many people can exist. And I mean, JFK, a month before he dies, 30 days, two days after his speech at the United Nations calling for uh, US-Russia cooperation, he says, Malthus at the Academy of Sciences says, Malthus argued a century and a half ago that man, by using up all his available resources, would forever press on the limits of subsistence thus condemning humanity to an indefinite future of misery and poverty. We can now begin to hope, and I believe, know that Malthus was expressing not a law of nature, but merely the limitation then of scientific and social wisdom. That's it.
0: Excellent, Matt. Excellent, excellent breakdown. CJ, I want to play a YouTube video real quick, Matt. This is pertinent to what we're talking about today, and I think it's a pretty cool clip. From Oliver Stone's JFK. Go ahead, Siege.
5: Huh. Anyway, after I came back,
0: I asked myself, Could you put the volume higher?
5: The chief of special ops selected to travel to the South Pole at that time to do the job all of the way. Number of others could have done it. And I wondered if it could have been because one of my routine duties, if I had been in Washington, would have been to arrange for additional security in Texas. So I decided to check it out. And sure enough, I found out that someone had told the 112th Military Intelligence Group at 4th Army Headquarters at Fort Sam Houston to stand down that day over the protest of the unit commander, Colonel Wright. I believe it's a This is significant because it is standard operating procedure, especially in a known hostile city like Dallas to supplement the secret service. I mean, even if we had not allowed the bubble top to be removed from the limousine, we would have placed at least 100 to 200 agents on the sidewalk without question. I mean, only a month ago. Yeah. You and Ambassador Antoni Stevenson spit on him. Wow. There had already been several attempts yeah. on DeGaulle's life in France. We would have arrived days ahead of time, studied the route, checked all the buildings, never would have allowed all those wide open, empty windows overlooking Dealing. never. We'd have had our own snipers covering the area. The minute a window went up, They'd have been on the radio. We'd have been watching the crowd, packages rolled up, newspapers, code on on Never would have let a man open an umbrella along the way. Never would have allowed that limousine to slow down to 10 miles an hour, much less take that unusual curve at Houston and Elm. You would have felt an army presence in the streets that day. None of this happened. It was a violation of the most basic protection codes we have. And it is the best indication of a massive plot in Dallas. Now, who could have best done this? Black ops, Mr. Garrison, people in my business, people like my superior officer could have called Colonel Reich and said, look, we have another unit coming from so-and-so providing security, you'll stand down. I mean, that day, in fact, there were some individual Army intelligence people in Dallas who still trying not figure out why. But they weren't protecting Client and, of course, Oswald. Army intel had a Harvey Lee Oswald on file. All those files were destroyed. Many strange things were happening. I and mean, Your Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with them had the entire cabinet on a trip to the Far East, we had a third of a combat division returning from Germany, in the air above the United States at the time of the shooting. At 12.34 PM, the entire telephone system went out in Washington for a solid hour. And on the plane back to Washington, word was radioed from the White House situations room to Lyndon Johnson that one individual performed the assassination. Does that sound like a bunch of coincidences to you, Mr. Garrison? For one moment. The cabinet was out of the country to get their perceptions out of the way. Troops were in the air for possible riot control. The telephones didn't work to get the wrong stories from spreading if anything went wrong with the plan. Nothing was left to chance. He could not be allowed to escape alive. (sighs) Well, I never thought things were the same after that. Vietnam started for real. There was an air of, I don't know, make-believe in the Pentagon and CIA. Those of us who'd been in secret ops since the beginning knew the Warren Commission was fiction. But there was something, something deeper, uglier. I know Alan Dulles very well. I briefed him many a time in his house. But for the life of me, I still can't figure out why he was appointed to investigate Kennedy's death, the man who had fired him. Dulles, by the way, was General Wyatt's benefactor. I got out in 64, signed my commission. I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the establishment. Is that why? Well, it's a real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the mafia keeps them guessing like some kind of parlor game, prevents them from asking the most important question why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it
0: there you go
1: yeah if that's not enough to make people want to watch that movie i don't know what is that yeah spend the five bucks on youtube or whatever it is wherever you find it just spend the money watch the movie it's very good excellent and folks most importantly get
0: over to canadianpatriot.org or RisingTideFoundation.net and get matthew's new books get it get it get it order from directly from him the best way to get it. It is a wonderful gift for the holidays. Give the gift of knowledge. Head over to CanadianPager.org or the RisingTideFoundation.net. Order the books. Clash of two Americas. It is mind-blasting, my friend, mind-blasting. Matt was dropping some serious bombs today by highlighting what Kennedy said. And you know, it's an interesting clip. At the same year that all these assassination attempts were taking place through multiple world leaders across the world. It was around the same time that De Gaulle was being attacked as well, my friend.
1: Yeah, he survived 30 assassination attempts, De Gaulle. He was uh, a lot more savvy with his protection and security than Kennedy was. But 30 assassination attempts until they finally only were able to get rid of him by a uh, a color revolution in 69. Yep. yep. Unreal. Matthew Eric,
0: thank you so much for joining us again, folks. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit us with a thumbs up. Hit that notification bell. It is vital that we fight the algos. We got, we're trying to get ourselves back up to 100,000. YouTube has us pegged at 98,500 for God knows how many months at this point. It's retarded. Uh, they keep our views squalched at 23 to 24, maybe for 4,000 views if we're lucky. On a channel, where we used to get like 20, 30, 40,000 views. So we're fighting hard, man. We're fighting hard. And um, also check us out on all the other platforms out there. And again, go ahead and support Matt's work. Subscribe to his Substack. Become a member of his Substack. Show your support for great researchers and uh, journalists like Matt uh, who really make a difference in this crazy, confusing time. It's an absolutely invaluable service he provides. And with that being said, El Cuco. Take it away.